It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome to Hard Hats and High Viz. It's week 21 of the program. And uh, I just want to remind our listeners, some of whom may be first-time listeners, that if you like what you hear in the show, please give us a review on your podcast app. Uh, and we always enjoy comments from uh, listeners, and uh, we welcome them. And you can drop us a line on the conditional release program at gmail.com or hit me up on at Jack the Insider on Twitter. My DMs are always open. Jack, Hong Kong Jack, joining me today. How are you, Jack? You've been uh, down with the COVID lurgy just for, uh, well, I think you're just about to go into, uh, your quarantine will just about end. Is that right? Have I got it right? Um, I'm not sure what the rules are on quarantine in, in <laughs> Hong Kong. Um, like a lot of, a hell of a lot of people in Hong Kong, I haven't bothered to report the fact that I've had COVID. Well, um, you have now. <laughs> uh, uh, well, only on this, and by the time they read this, I will have recovered. I hope because <laughs> yeah, the consequences know. of reporting that you got COVID here is that they might just bang you off to Penny's Bay uh, uh, yeah. and, and, and make you live in a, uh, a converted shipping container for <laughs> ten days or so. You know, oh, um, changes as good as a holiday, mate. Uh, it's just near Disneyland uh, out there on, <laughs> on Southland Town. Um, uh, but you have the, to climb um, the Razor Ribbon to get to get to it, I presume. Yeah, um, uh, the, but. The, I'm, yes, I was tra- chatting a week or so, 10 days or so ago, before I caught COVID, having a drink with a, a chap who'd been out there and he said the food was um, not of the highest quality. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 there was no Wi-Fi. Um, he'd been bunged out there with his son, um, uh, who had been uh, in, in the United States and Canada with his mother and his son had come back and Caught a dose, and by the time they were all sent out there, they were all testing positive, but they were still made to stay for 10 days. Oh, they were testing negative, you mean? They tested negative? They were testing negative by the time they were sent there. uh, Too late. But they were still required to spend ten days out there. Uh, it was just a shambles. There was you know, two little cots in the in, in the one room, uh, bedding for one only, no towels. Um, you know, just a shambles. And uh, you can't go down to the concierge and complain, I presume. Well, no, well you could, uh, but it won't do you any good. Yeah, I'm not sure there is a concierge. <laughs> uh, uh, so, well, uh, so, so, so I haven't I haven't bothered to report um, uh, my positive test. Um, and I and I hope hopefully I'll be over it in a day or so. Um, uh, well, you uh, you uh, you looked a bit poorly uh, uh, late last week, but I've got to say you're looking in the pink at the moment. Uh, yes, so yeah, feeling a bit better today. Yeah. It, it it probably is worth asking: is there is the person on the planet who hasn't had COVID yet? Um, there must be a few, um, perhaps in remote areas, but uh, uh, it, it seems like everyone I know has had it at least once. Yeah, yeah, look, it has been pretty common. It's been running through my family in Australia this weekend, actually. So, is it? Uh, yeah, 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 second time. Uh, no, I think the first. Um, uh, but yeah, for, for for most of them, anyway, the first. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm I'm struggling to find um, I have plenty of friends here in Hong Kong who haven't had it, and that's because we've had lots of kind of not lockdowns, but lots of restrictions. And all that's done, really. I think we I think we now know all that does is delay the time until you get yeah, COVID. It pushes it, pushes it, pushes yeah. it down the track. Uh, look, yeah. the only sensible part of that is that when it, when it does push it down the track, you tend to have fairly fairly light uh, um, <coughs> versions of the virus. And, uh, and and so, yeah, there were some horror shows going around the world a year or so ago, but when Omicron came in and its many variants, it uh, it just made, uh, made it really no worse than the flu for a whole lot of us who were vaccinated, by the way. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the way it's kind of panned out. And that's not always the case. I mean, there are some uh, people with... Uh, with with, at high risk of, of health problems who need to be very, very cautious going forward. But for the rest of us, it's um, it's just something like the flu we have to live with. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm in the, you know, has he got some prior medical conditions? Uh, yeah, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Let uh, me just uh, wheel out your medical records. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. Need, we'll need to put in the back of an HSV ute. Yeah, well, well, both of us are in that category, and we seem to have yeah, had it without uh, too much difficulty. I'm so. just, I'm just the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, twenty five volumes, uh, my health records. Um, you want to, you want to make sure they're digitised. It costs you a few bob to uh, transport them from one place to another. Yeah, well, I, I did actually confess to my cardiologist that uh, that I that I had it more or less. Um, his secretary rang up and said, "We want to do a procedure on you uh, uh, today, actually." tonight, Monday, and I said, just hypothetically, what if I tested positive to COVID, uh, uh, what would happen? And she said, well, hypothetically, uh, uh, Jack, we would put it back a week. Okay, let's call that put it back a week. (laughs) (laughs) I do recall at Westmead Hospital, someone heaving out my medical records, you know, it was a two-man lift, and uh, and there there they all were, you know, sitting in about uh, half a dozen folders. and uh, this is what you get, you know, when when you're a newborn, you get just get the one A four sheet, and that's about it. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, look, kicking us off today, once we uh, once we push aside our our, our personal travails, um, uh, the news poll is out. Polling of this uh, at this uh, stage of the electoral cycle is really uh, only for uh, political nuts alone to look at. But uh, the coalition has its lowest primary vote since 2008 uh, at 31%, uh, down a few points on its election result. Two-party preferred, if we are to believe that, and it becomes more and more difficult to believe, is at 57.43. Now, is this just uh, a bit of post-election pain, Jack, Paul, part of the cycle, or something much worse for the Liberal Party? Well, I think on the face of it, what it is, is that the... During the election, I think the voters were had had enough of the Liberal Party uh, and had enough of Scott Morrison in particular and were not quite sure of what they thought of Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. In fact, I think, I think it's fair to say they've got a pretty fair idea of who the Labor Party is. They weren't too sure of Anthony Albanese. Post-election, they've discovered they think that Anthony Albanese's going okay. He seems like he'll make a fair, pretty fair Prime Minister. So... That means that the Labor, that the, that the satisfaction with the decision that they made um, uh, to, to, to get rid of the, the Morrison government has been franked, if you like. It's been reinforced. So that's, that's pushed the, the voters a little bit. The other thing, of course, is that as um, revelations of just what a poor Prime Minister Morrison was come has, have come out get, post-election, getting that, confirmed. That, is also, that has also franked the decision of the voters in their own mind, and that's pushed the vote, that's pushed the polling um, a little bit further. We're going to be able to, we're going to, going to be able to cut that out. We'll see. Um, look, yes. Yeah, so, uh, just just for our listeners, uh, the sounds of Hong Kong uh, are resonating through your ears, no doubt, as they are through mine as we record. I believe you got some uh, construction work going on. It seems like. It seems like traffic noise, but it, um, but it, it, it's obviously a bit of construction going on in the building there. Yeah, it's it's someone um, uh, uh, hammer drilling and jackhammering. Um, uh, it, there's always someone in a block of flats this size, twenty one floors, renovating somewhere, uh, and every now and again, it's only three or four floors above you, and this is what you get. Yeah, look, we do apologise to our listeners and. Uh, We'll get the wonderful K Lee to have a look at it, our editor, to see if it can't be removed. But we'll move on, Jack. And look, I just think that, uh, you know, that this polling result, uh, ably described by yourself, this, this polling result tells us quite a few things that the Liberal Party need to get things right very, very quickly. Uh, otherwise, they, you know, we can compare it to 2008 and the Kevin Rudd show back then. But it was a very difficult, a very different environment, political environment now. Now you have basically the majors sitting on around 70% of the primary vote, where it used to be 80, even in 2008. Uh, and there are, there is a large field of others and small parties picking up major party votes. And I think you can very quickly become irrelevant in these, uh, in, in, you know, electorally. I mean, the Libs are looking at a potential disaster in Victoria. Um, they are looking at a defeat in New South Wales that would take them off the mainland in any government in the mainland. 
and and really, I just think if they if they limp the way they are into the next federal election, they are in in, in serious existential trouble. Yeah, uh, I kind of doubt that. Um, you know, I, I can remember when Labor was that that irrelevant for a fair bit of my youth. It was that irrelevant, unelectable in Victoria, just about always unelectable federally. Um, I think the only thing we were hanging on to was just a, a, the odd outbreak of a Don Dunstan in South Australia and the and the long running Rand government in New South Wales. That's all we had. Um, yeah, look, that's that's absolutely true. But as I say, the, the environment now is far more volatile. And, and, and it's one that really won't countenance a party losing uh, elections and getting thumped. Um, <clears throat> and and look, when I when I talk about what can happen and how quickly it can happen, we not, we only need to look across the uh, the Nullarbor at Western Australia uh, to see how badly things can get very very quickly. Um, and that would cause all sorts of problems. Now, they won't. That, that's not to say that there will be this enormous vacuum on the spectrum with no one in the right uh, being represented in Parliament. It would just mean that a, a new party or a, uh, some sort of phoenix would rise from the ashes of the Liberal Party. But as I say, they do not, they're not going about it the right way for mine. I mean, this idea that they wouldn't engage in the Jobs and Skills Summit, I mean, the Nats turned up. Uh, Angus Taylor was going to turn up, but then Peter Dutton put the kibosh on, on it all, saying it was all about the unions and blah, 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 and they basically just traded themselves out. Yeah, well, the, the, the closest precedent of what you're suggesting is the, is the demise of the United Australia Party um, uh, at the in the late 1930s and early 1940s, which mm. sort of disappeared off the map. Um, uh, uh, Bob Menzies had been a... Prime Minister for the UAP, um, but the, for, for various reasons, perhaps a little bit like what we face now, uh, it, it just kind of collapsed in on itself. And he said about setting a, a, inventing a new party, which became the, the modern Australian Liberal Party, um, there will always be a spot for a party that is uh, the, the non-Labor Party, if you like, in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I'd suggest. I'd suggest if it changes its name. That's okay. Um, you know, there, yeah, there yeah. will be no, a spot. Yeah, I mean, the idea that Labor will rule <laughs> unchallenged for for decades is is, is quite patently a nonsense. But uh, when we are talking about a party um, of the right, it needs to it needs to be in the centre. Otherwise, it, it it ceases to appeal to people, the large bulk of Australians. And where they sit politically, and and that's where that's that's the great danger for them that they either become irrelevant or they become so extreme that no one will vote for them. Uh, not even the drunks in the old John Curtin Hotel used to believe that Labor was ever going to rule unchallenged. Um, <laughs> no, it's never going. That's never going to happen. But will uh, the Liberal Party continue to continue to exist at a state and federal level uh, if they're uh, if they're dealt out? if they're dealt out of state leadership and, of course, federal leadership for a period of time. Well, that's, that's in, the, in, in the lap of the voters um, to some extent and, and, and also in the lap of the Liberal Party as to how well they play yeah, that's their cards. Mean. Now, yeah. personally, I, personally, my personal view is um, um, if I were Peter Dutton, I would have trotted along to the Jobs and Labor Summit, but I don't think that's terribly important. Uh, I think he's by and large on the right track. Um, myself, um, he's probably never going to become Prime Minister, um, but he's got a job to do, um, and that's to um, uh, to keep the troops together and to keep putting up some kind of effort as, um, as an opposition, um, to, to accept the fact that they're not going to make the finals, but they ought to be a, a competitive side in the... Um, in They've got the to rebuild, form. though, Jack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got to rebuild. And well, they got and they got well, to start. First thing you got to do. First thing you got to do is stabilise the place, and I think he's provided some stability. Um, and then you just got to be competitive while you set about rebuilding. Well, I don't think uh, they have any chance of winning Victoria while he remains leader. That will be the next test for him. I mean, I'll, I'll have a little side bet here with you, Jack, that he will not campaign at all uh, in Victoria around the state election. 
it'd be a waste of time in going there. The Victorians aren't going to win, not because of Peter Dutton. The Victorians aren't going to win because of completely self-inflicted local Victorian words. Yeah, but look, uh, you know, the old African crime gang nonsense, that was uh, that was a line put about by Peter Dutton before the 2018 state election. It was also reinforced by Scott Morrison. They're both still in the parliament. I don't think Scott, Scott will be doing much campaigning down in Victoria. Um, but uh, I, don't think, would... I don't think Scott will be doing any campaigning anywhere. <laughs> not, not for the Liberal Party, at least. Perhaps with this new, with this new organic body that we, that may arise from the ashes. Um, but uh, can, you, yeah. can you can you imagine a Liberal MP anywhere in Australia Thanks, getting Scott. on the blower and saying, "Hey, Scott, <laughs> come listen, there, we've mate. got a bit of a fundraiser coming up here next <laughs> weekend. Would you Scott, mind popping over? Wonder if you um, get out uh, and glad make you the guest speaker. You know? Yeah, wonder if you could come." Down and glad hand uh, the punters for me uh, at the local railway station. Um, yeah, don't think that's going to happen. Um, but uh, look, yeah, powerless times I think for the Liberal Party, uh, and uh, if they they continue to sort of go about things uh, in this kind of oh no, we're we're just waiting for the people to come along and join us rather than uh, pitching themselves to uh, to the Australian to Australian voters as a party of the right uh, and of the centre then I think they're in serious trouble. Uh, now, as we said, they didn't turn up they didn't turn up to the Jobs and Skills Summit last week, and this led to a very, very funny exchange um, uh, that involved Natalie Barr, who's the, uh, uh, who's the, uh, the, the, the journo, so to speak, on, on, uh, on Sunrise on Channel 7. And Megan, so- Marcus, Megan Marcus' friend. <laughs> yeah, no, she's very good at what she does. Uh, and Susan Lay and Jason Clare, the member for Blacktown, and Natalie Barr said of uh, of the non attendance at uh, at the Jobs and Skills Summit, asked Susan Lee, "Are you guys spitting the dummy?" And Susan Lee, well, Susan Lay went on, "You've mentioned the union several times, Jason. They're really important to you in that room. There's twenty five percent union representation and only ten percent in the workforce, which isn't right." And by the way, I'm not sitting in a room full of union thugs, including the one who said yesterday, directed to us in the opposition, if you're not at the table, you're part of the menu. I think you should condemn that language. I'm not part of any menu. I'm in Lismore. I'm talking to real people. And Jason Clare responded, you're in Sydney. You can see the Sydney CBD behind you right now. (laughs) And Susan Lee said... I was in Lismore yesterday and I'm out in the southwest of Sydney today, she was at the CBD, where I'll still be talking to businesses, to industry, to employers and to the very many women who are standing ready to participate in the workforce in different companies and Claire Spide. And in that room, you've got banks, mining companies, tech companies. So very, very funny there. Uh, tried to uh, sell the old thing. I'm uh, out in the regions uh, pumping the flesh with very interested people and, of course, she was in the Sydney CBD because we could see it in the background. Very funny, Jack. You've always got to turn around and have a look what's behind you. <laughs> it's kind of important. <laughs> I'm in Lismore talking to real people. No, you weren't. But back to the Jobs and Skills Summit, Jack. Well, she wasn't She wasn't quite right about the percentage of union members. But <laughs> not, not even close. Well, when the last summit was held, um, the last big Bob Hawke summit was held, the percentage of the Australian workforce that was unionised was around 40%. Yeah, it's around 10 and now. now 10 I think or 12. it's around 12 and a half or yeah. 15. Mm. Uh, but they did not, as, uh, as Susan Lay said, uh, 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 make up 25% of those representing and only 10% were, were coming from the workforce. I don't know where she got those figures from because there were a large number of employers groups uh, involved in the summit, and of course, Jack, uh, the summit wrapped up. Wrapped up at about two thirty on a on a Friday afternoon. Very agreeable hours for uh, people wanting to talk about work, uh, or very agreeable hours for people wanting to hop on a burner and get the hell out of Canberra. <laughs> That's exactly. Perhaps have a have a light refreshment on the way out. Um, but uh, and the and this is according to the Prime Minister's office. The outcomes have been an, and I'll, and I'll I'll run through the quick list. From the PMO, hello Jackhammer, uh, and uh, and uh, it, the first of these is an additional one billion in joint federal state funding for fee free TAFE in 2023, 
uh, an accelerated delivery of 465,000 fee-free TAFE places, a one-off income credit so that aged pensioners who want to work can earn an additional 4,000 over this financial year without losing any of their pension. That's actually coalition policy that they grabbed. Uh, number three, more flexibility, utilising $575 million in the National Housing Infrastructure Facility to invest in social and affordable housing and attract financing from superannuation funds and other sources of private capital. Uh, number four, modernising Australia's workplace relation laws, including to make bargaining accessible for all workers and businesses. We'll get back to that one in a minute. Uh, number five, amending the Fair Work Act to strengthen access to flexible work arrangements, uh, make, unpa uh, uh, make unpaid parental leave more flexible and strengthen protection for workers against discrimination and harassment. And number six, uh, improving access to jobs and training pathways for women, First Nations people. These are all, uh, <coughs> uh, shall we say, uh, on the wish list, I suppose. And number seven, an increase in the permanent migration program ceiling to 195. That's up from 175 in 2022-2023. And finally, number eight, extending visas and relaxing work restrictions on international students to strengthen the pipeline of skilled labour and providing additional funding to resolve the visa backlog. So those are, some of those things are deeply aspirational, Jack. Um, but item four refers to an expansion of enterprise bargaining, uh, which uh, will allow multi-employer and employee bargaining, uh, and which amends, and don't governments love a good acronym, the better off overall, overall test, which means the boot, which is called the boot, uh, in, a, in a bid to fix the, uh, the in, in enterprise bargaining agreement. It's fair to say that workers who are under EBAs at the moment, many of them are four or five years old, if not older. Uh, the word modernising does some heavy lifting there, doesn't it? <laughs> Look, that is, and I do apologise to our listeners, that is uh, that is a beautiful piece of government speak, that whole lot there, uh, lots of buzzwords in there. Uh, and there will, uh, there will be some people who think some people who think this is a, a, a throwback um, uh, to the eighties rather than a modernising. But still, what, what yeah, it really what it really amounted to, um, uh, in a nutshell, in my view, the um, the summit was a deal between, um, uh, or a playoff between the business community and the trade union movement. What did business get? Business got the immigration um, problem addressed. That means that the, the cap on arrivals has gone up, and some efforts have been made to address problems with the immigration uh, uh, process to speed it up a little bit. Um, and, and they also got the pension thing through, which means more pensioners can do some work. That will increase. That will that will lessen the job shortage in Australia. Those two things. Um, and what did the unions get? The unions got dealt back into the table. First of all, they're there at the table, and secondly, they got uh, some capacity to do multi-employer bargaining. So that's that's the the whole job summit in a nutshell. Yes, no, that's that's absolutely right. Very succinctly put there. So, how would enterprise bargaining work across multiple uh, I I employer groups, Jack? How would it work? So, the idea is that if you work in one particular small business uh, and you, you you as a group can uh, collectivise uh, and negotiate on beh on behalf of yourselves with uh, with a group of like employers. That's the answer. The answer to that question is: at the moment, I think we don't know mm. that uh, the uh, industry. Sorry, the employment minister uh, and minister for industrial relations, uh, Minister Burke, has uh, indicated that there will be some legislation on the table very soon. Yes, and, and that'll give us some idea. Now, part of the thing they had to address was the what had gone wrong with immigration and. Um, uh, I read this on um, on LinkedIn yesterday um, uh, from uh, from a, a, a chap who works for a business that I have a share, and this is what you get. He's talking about the problems with visa visa processing now. This is what you get when you uh, 
when you sack dozens of highly skilled migration and visa program managers and turn the Department of Immigration into a into a black shirted security agency. And, Ooh, and that's I actually like, that's actually I like that kind of talk, Jack. That's actually spot on. That's what's gone mm. wrong to a large extent with um, uh, with immigration policy in Australia. Um, and the rest of what's gone wrong with immigration policy Australia is the consequences of lockdown and our and our border policies during lockdown. Much of which, much of which, well, it, it couldn't have been helped at the time. I don't think there are too many Australians. Well, some parts of it could have been. Um, uh, yeah, lo- preventing Australians from leaving is having consequences now. Um, uh, that that they were preventing Australians from leaving. There was no logic to that at all. No, there wasn't. No, that's absolutely right. There was no logic to that at all, and we we essentially shut ourselves off to the world. Um, and we even had Australian citizens who could who did fly home, who did fly to perhaps places with their um, uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, and uh, were, not, were not allowed to uh, return home. That was pretty shocking. Yeah. yeah so uh, part of itself inflicted. The most interesting thing, most interesting thing, other thing that happened in the uh, at, at the at the uh, summit, I thought, was that Ross Garner spoke at the dinner. I, I believe the uh, Ross Garner was a um, an economics advisor and later a climate advisor yes, um, yes. Uh, to various Australian governments, and um, and he said, he was reminding people there that the the real success of the economic reforms that happened through the Keating and Howard years was that the vested interests were told to be quiet, put to one side, and reforms happened in spite of what they wanted to have happen. And when he was talking about the vested interest, he's talking about the business vested interest and the union vested interest. That's right. So, and, and that essentially led to the accord where, you know, in order to control inflation, these are very similar economic. Um, uh, conditions or preconditions in the economy right now, and, and the accord was trade off, trade off wage rises for productivity increases. So wage rises went through, but were controlled through the accord with the trade union movement and the government, uh, and uh, and productivity increases occurred as a result. Uh, and it was considered, I mean, historically looking back, it was incredibly successful. It did not allow wages to blow out and and just continue to you know spiral for for inflation to snowball on the back of it. Yeah, the most important thing they did with immigration uh, is not just raising the numbers. Secondly, improving the processing because the processing has been stuck, not working properly. The third thing they do is the third thing they've done that's right is to uh, re-emphasise skilled trades migration um, and to open up pathways for overseas students to come and do skilled trades in Australia. Yes, that's another very vital thing. And so processing, Jack, in your experience as an immigration lawyer in Hong Kong, you're telling me that that the, uh, the immigration department, which is part of the uh, Home Affairs uh, Ministry, is, has been very, very slow uh, is that is that just the Morrison government, or has that been an historical problem going back beyond that? A uh, bit of both, really, but it hasn't been. The changes to the migration agency, um, uh, uh, the, the whole birth of the border force was a mistake. I objected purely on aesthetic grounds. All that black shirt stuff was just terrible. But, black shirts uh, and medals. They were pumping out the medal shack. <laughs> they were yeah, slamming yeah. those medals out there. It, was, it did and, and looked ridiculous. There was a, a, an also a, a scene there where uh, where uh, the the police were going to conduct some uh, going to conduct a bit of a crime crackdown in Melbourne. I don't know if you remember this, Jack. But, and they were uh, they were going out in number and uh, and and doing warrant searches and things like that. And then it was announced that the uh, the border force boys would be along with them to check uh, to check visas. And everyone went, "You can't be serious!" And the whole thing got shut down. Yeah, uh, I, I object to the whole metal things, generally speaking. Uh, I notice, just, just to digress slightly, uh, this has become particularly common in the United States uh, with generals who now look like they're, um, uh, the, 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 they're, they're generals in the Chilean hmm. army or something. Oh, Pyongyang. You know, with, a, 
with, with, a, with a, a, a stretch of metals about a foot and a half long. Um, I, I'm always reminded of MacArthur, who wore nothing else but khakis and his rank. No medals, no pack drill, um, and I've always thought that's a much preferable approach. Old soldiers never die, Jack. Um, all right. Now, uh, the Fin Review has sort of wrapped uh, up the Jobs and Skills Summit by saying the Albanese government, as we said before, will start work next week on legislation to introduce multi-employer bargaining. Uh, so that's an expansion of the enterprise bargaining, and it really had just crept to a crept to a standstill the enterprise bargaining system. Uh, Innes Wilcox, uh, Willox, I should say, um, and I always think it's Wilcox because it seems like it should be, but it isn't. It's Innes Wilcox. Uh, who's <laughs> He's been around for a long time, and I've has, been, I, every has. time I read it, I think exactly the same thing. You know, I know. Um, it's just like that. But it is Innes Wilcox, and he's the chief executive of the Australian Industry Group. He has warned the multi-employer bargaining decision has the potential to shut down key parts of our economy in the pursuit of claims. Willock said employers were, and I quote, concerned at the potential for the opening of a new front for disruptive and costly industrial action, potentially across a sector or broad parts of the economy. Uh, are we going to hand over the, and your answer, I suppose, is we need to look at the legislation, but are we handing over the EBA system to the unions, Jack? Well, we'll Come about all those. We just have to wait and see. This is a historical thing in Australia where they've, you know, uh, this is waxed and waned, as they say, from time to time. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Indeed. And Prime, Prime Minister uh, Anthony Albanese said his government's decision to legislate uh, multi-employer uh, EBAs was not about giving unions more power in workplaces. He said the decision was made to help workers receive a wage increase rather than helping unions and industrial action. Um, we also need to have a damn good look at the uh, Fair Work uh, um, uh, body too, don't we, Jack? Uh, that's well overdue, I would have thought. That is well overdue for a bit of reform there. And it just seems that the last government uh, were just loading up um, uh, loading up uh, people uh, that were friendly to it uh, into fairly senior roles, uh, making, making judgments on cases, that sort of stuff. It can't, it can't continue that way. Yeah. Um, uh, our industrial relations system benefits from periodic um, reform and, and restructuring, I think. Well, I'd suggest uh, part of that reform might be giving a few fair work commissioners the flick jack because, because some of them, some of them, well, I, well, I think that there was a last round of Liberal Party appointments or Morrison government appointments that were all Liberal Party uh, uh, people. Uh, and, uh, and some of them, well, we did have an anti-vaxxer on board in the Fair Work uh, and the Fair Work Commission too, where she, she had to be told she couldn't sit on vaccination matters. Dear, oh dear. There was a, um, a, a judge of the old uh, um, Industrial Relations Commission many, many years ago um, who was appointed, and in those days they got um, not a lifetime appointment, but through to the age of statutory yeah. senility, which is 72. Um, uh, but the chairman of the Industrial Relations Commission wouldn't allocate him any work uh, because um, it was realised shortly after he was appointed that it, it was a he was a, a rabid lefty. I think he was probably still a card carrying communist. In fact, I'm, I know he was a card carrying communist. And, uh, and they couldn't usefully give him any work. Um, so he spent um, the next, I think, the next 15 or so years while he, <laughs> while he, while he worked his way through to the age of statutory senility, um, uh, uh, building boats, uh, uh, travelling overseas. <laughs> Having uh, a lovely uh, time on the full in fact, he became a remittance man, and it's alleged that he once sent a telegram from overseas that saying that he didn't mind being a remittance man provided the checks arrived in a timely fashion. <laughs> it's, not, it's nice work if you can find it, Jack. Yeah, but, yeah. I, 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 guess the, I guess the problem is that he, did, he didn't actually sit on matters, which is definitely the right way to yeah, go. that's right. Uh, but yeah, some of yeah. these characters have been, and, uh, and, and they need I'm, to be taken out. I'm, 
I'm told he built a. I'm told he built a lovely yacht somewhere up on Middle Harbour. I think uh, <laughs> uh, during that time, and of course he also he was also entitled to employ um, uh, judges' associates, all of whom were oh, yeah. were were rising stars of the New South Wales left, um, uh, who got a, a kind of a free kick. Um, uh, uh, so they could do their university degree or whatever while they were on the books as his his associates. So, um, like I say, Jack, nice work if you can get it. Yeah, great if you can pull it off. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, look, last week, of course, we had uh, the conviction of Chris Dawson for the murder of his wife, Lynn, in January 1982. And I want to take uh, uh, a, a brief moment to praise Hedley Thomas, one of the great uh, journalists and investigative journalists in this country uh, for his work there. Um, many, many millions of people around the world listened to his um, podcast, Teacher's Pet, uh, and uh, it's fair to say uh, that without it, uh, <coughs> Lynn uh, Dawson's family would not have had their moment of justice last week. Uh, I did notice when I wrote, a, I, I just popped up a tweet just saying how good Headley's work was. And some someone came back to me and said, "Oh, look, the judge was the judge was critical in in parts of the podcast." Uh, <clears throat> and so he said, "So this tweet, uh, uh, a Twitter uh, a follower said, uh, you know, so it's a mixed bag." Uh, but uh, my my view is that if Headley hadn't have Hadley hadn't have done this work, this very important work, uh, that Chris Dawson would still be wandering around the Gold Coast today. Yeah, I'm always troubled um, by um, bringing cases from that far ago. Um, my, my instincts are kind of very cautious about that. It was, I think it was 40 years from, uh, from, uh, from the incident, from the murder until trial, and it's... Mm. That, there's a problem with that, in my view, in, in, in that they can be very difficult for a defendant to, to mount a defence from that distance. Um, uh, but I understand why you can't have a statute of limitations on those sort of things. As to the media coverage, well, again, um, I've got no problem with Hedley Thomas doing the, the, the Teacher's Pet podcast and it being successful. Um, uh, uh, and there were no charges at the time. Um, there was nothing pending, so there's no reason why he can't do that. But I think judges have been troubled by that. I think it was Justice Elizabeth Fullerton in an earlier application to, to permanently stay the trial who said this, I'm in no doubt that the adverse publicity in this case, or more accurately, the unrestrained and uncensored public commentary about the applicant's guilt is the most egregious example of media interference with a criminal trial process which this court has had to consider in deciding whether to take the extraordinary step of permanently staying a criminal prosecution. She was also critical of former New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller for appearing uh, as part of Thompson's, Thomas's podcast. Um, the comment I would make about what she said was uh, the uncensored public commentary. I don't, know, I don't know how you can censor public commentary without getting into the realms of <laughs> destruction of freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, as it turns out, Justice Robert Speech-Jones granted the uh, defence in this in this situation, a trial by judge alone, so That's that right. there was no jury involved. That is, the, the judge is the, the finder of law and the finder of fact um, in an attempt to, um, uh, to, to, to provide the defendants with as fair a trial as possible. Yeah, look, that that judgment that you just read out, or a part of it that you just read out, that just smacks to me of, of a judiciary, or a, or at least a, a, a law, a, 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 sorry, a judge in this case who has really no understanding of, of of not just journalism, but just how information spreads around in in this world these days. Um, that uh, you know, if. Something like uh, teacher's pet grabs the uh, grabs the imagination, and clearly he, it did, and it did because of the very fine work that Headley did. Um, then, uh, then there is go there is going to be a lot of public commentary, and that's just all there is to it. 
Um, there's going to be conversations on social media. There's going to be conversations in comments uh, in, in media websites. There's going to be um, people just sitting around uh, over a barbecue having a chat about it. I, I just don't understand what 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 that what what how that could be a problem that could be controlled by a, by a legal process. Yeah, we had, we had the absurd situation after the George Pell trial where um, it, all the news was embargoed in Australia, and yet um, uh, I could read every little bit of it in Hong Kong. Um, uh, yeah. And, 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 yeah, and people were telephoning me to find out what was happening, but they actually <laughs> knew what was happening because these things leaked like a sieve. Everyone in the legal profession knew what had happened. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but I go back to... As to the risks of, of this sort of publicity, I go back to um, uh, the Lindy Chamberlain case. Um, oh, here we go. One of, one of the more egregious um, uh, failures of the criminal justice system in Australia, perhaps the most in my, in my lifetime. Um, she I was convicted. <laughs> clearly at the time, you know, a lot of us in the legal profession thought she was wrongly convicted. Um, uh, and she was wrongly convicted on the back, not of press coverage, but of community sentiment. You were right about this, Jack. It's what's said about, not just what's said in the newspapers, it's what's said um, over a barbecue or over a beer in the pub or over a cup of tea or something. Um, uh, and, and, and in a small, a relatively small community like the Northern Territory, um, her prospects of getting a tri fair trial were, were just about zero. Yes. Um, uh, if you read the wonderful uh, 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 book by the late John Bryson, um, what was the book? Was it called Evil Angels, the book? Yes, um, Evil Angels, yeah. yeah um, Film uh, came out as well, of he, course. He, he can, yes, it was Meryl Streep's finest moment. It's when we realised she couldn't really he do accents. He goes, my baby. Yeah. <laughs> then we started thinking perhaps she wasn't so good at Polish accents either. Anyway, uh, back, <laughs> to the, back to the pointed, um, pointed issue here. If you read Evil Angels, the thing that sticks out most is that nobody in the courtroom, none of the none of the lawyers on either side, really thought she was going to be convicted. There was a whole mess of uh, forensic um, science, uh, and criminal investigations of of crime scenes there that was absolutely bogus as well, and that is another potential flaw in these days of. Uh, of, uh, of forensic science and DNA and so forth, then that can be manipulated to lead to an outcome. Juries will convict on DNA. Uh, and that means if you're able to, in some means, be able to obtain DNA, uh, be able to uh, uh, link uh, an, uh, uh, an accused person uh, to a crime scene uh, by manipulating that crime scene, then you'll get a conviction. Mm. And that's very dangerous for me. I don't think a lot of people see that. And I can give you an example of how it could occur. You just show a cigarette butt that you've obtained, that you've secured from from the accused, right? While he was while he was being interviewed down at the cop shop and you and you let him out for a cigarette, someone goes and grabs his cigarette and then just basically throws it into a crime scene crime scene um, uh, <coughs> crime scene uh, evidence. Uh, and then all of a sudden you've got a link. That directly puts him at a crime scene when he wasn't actually there. Very easy thing to do, uh, and and it is potentially devastating um, mm. for for uh, for the rights of the accused. Look, I I, I take your point about this. Um, there was I, I was actually surprised at the conviction of, of Dawson because I thought there was a lot that could go wrong, and 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 uh, in a judge only case, as you as you say, which is what the defence had called for. Um, that there was no body for a start, which always makes a conviction more difficult. And there was, while there was an absolutely a, a, a comprehensive uh, evidence, <coughs> uh, comprehensive evidence there, no one could no one could establish a crime scene because there there was no crime scene as far as we know. There is no evidence indicating that there was a crime scene outside of the outside of the family home. There was circumstantial evidence that huge circumstantial of, of a very high order, mm. um, but not much else. Personally, I was a little surprised with the conviction myself. My view of it was that despite the circumstantial evidence, there were other possibilities that it was hard to rule out. 
in order to get to in order to get to the point of um, of guilty beyond reasonable doubt, absent body, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, absent body crime scene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, I was a little surprised by the um, by, by the conviction. I must must say, I was surprised, but in a in, in a very uh, a very good way. That uh, I mean, I and I watched the judgment being handed down. I don't know if you did, Jack, or I certainly caught the uh, the uh, the last half of it. And he dismissed the, the you know the business of sightings, uh, the the evidence that uh, Dawson uh, had put about that he had uh, made contact with his wife and clearly she had uh, 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 disappeared without trace some point on or after I think January 20, 1982. Um, uh, and and these matters of course were exhaustively uh, canvassed in in Teachers Pet by Headley. Um, uh, I, what, what I can tell you, Jack, is that there is a fascination with true crime and that every journalist now, uh, investigative journalist, will be looking for a crime, will be looking for someone to, get, to give them some notice of a crime where perhaps there has been a miscarriage of justice or a person not brought to account who should have been. Uh, and uh, we are going to get more of this rather than less. Uh, given the um, given the the listenership figures that Headley managed to accumulate, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised about that. No, self interest uh, self interest will out. Yeah, well, look, Headley Headley's uh, won just about everything there is as a journalist to win, uh, and uh, look, I applaud him for his work, uh, and I think uh, it does uh, create a, a role for journalism. A, a role for journalism that is that is that can be in conflict with uh, with the with the criminal justice system, um, but uh, I think if we go back to the nineteen eighties, Jack, New South Wales policing, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of unresolved matters there. Oh, that, I'm sure there are. I'm and, sure and, there are. And, so, and, and, and if, if if you do want to read. Uh, a great bit of coverage of a trial. I do recommend the late John Dice, John Bryson's um, uh, uh, Evil, Evil Angels. Angels. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll move on from that. Uh, um, uh, other than to say, uh, this is going to be a, a problem going forward. But um, uh, it wasn't Hedley Thomas's fault that the coppers weren't weren't much chop in uh, in New South Wales in in nineteen eighty two. Um, moving on. Sport, Jack, and there's just so much. You wouldn't believe it, but Nick Kyrgios has absolutely smashed Dimitri Medvedev, the world's number one, winning three sets to one. That's just occurred now as we record on the 5th of September. So well that, done, Nick. Is that the third round or the fourth round? I think it's third. I think it's third. Let me just quickly check. Um, uh, he will go on now to reach the, the quarterfinals. So would that be fourth round? Yeah, it's fourth round. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, into the quarterfinals, it does prove that that Kyrgios is absolutely world standard when he's on his game and can and can beat anyone. Perhaps this might be the turning point. He's, he's always had the ability; um, uh, he just couldn't string it together. Well, he, you know, he's, he's string together a, a, a Wimbledon final, uh, and now uh, well on his way in the, in uh, in the U.S. Open. So he's playing at this particular age. Might have been a little bit slower to mature than others, but at this particular age, and I think he's late twenties, uh, he's probably playing the best tennis of his life. His form between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open is pretty much held up as well. I'm not sure he's won any tournaments, but he's uh, or maybe he did win one. Yeah, uh, he, but he, he, did, he did win a he did win a minor tournament, a little warm up yeah. tournament, I think, in Canada. Yeah, but 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 his form was his form within those tournaments has been good. So, you know, um, uh, good luck to him if he finally pulls it together and um, uh, and becomes the tennis player he, he probably could have been six or seven years ago. Yeah, I'm an unashamed fan of Nick. I reckon uh, go. Go, uh, young man, um, and uh, get the job done. Uh, he's certainly, certainly, uh, what can often happen. Of course, if you beat the top seed, uh, you go to the next round and uh, and uh, and have a bit of a lapse. But um, uh, we hope that doesn't happen. And he goes on to make the final and win it. Uh, <coughs> meanwhile, <coughs> Serena Williams has bowed out. After, I think it was a second round loss, or was it a third round? Second round, I think. Second round, I think, yeah. S yeah, second round loss. Uh, and uh, and that is the end of her tennis career, where she equals Margaret Court in terms of number of Grand, grand Slam wins, Jack. 
Yes, she did. Well, she's equal. Yeah. That for and there's time. been a lot of, um, uh, I see our old friend Peter Fitzsimons wrote a long piece about whether she was the greatest of all time. Um, uh, the usual thing, sprinkled with unnecessary commas, but um, uh, and he decided that she was. <laughs> and he was having a bit of a shot at Margaret Court saying, well, Serena would have knocked her off the park. And, of course, that's true. Uh, in part because the the rackets are so much better today than the ones that Margaret Court played with, mm. um, that would make a difference. One thing he didn't understand about Margaret Court was though that Margaret Court, in her time, changed the way that women's tennis was played. Margaret Court trained with the men, went into the gym with the men, um, uh, and and could hit the ball with a great deal of power for her time with the current equipment. Um, so. He was talking about Serena changing the game. Margaret Court changed the game in her time as well. Well, Serena has certainly been in the day. I mean, I think we could say that, you know, because Margaret Court's what, what she, she oh, this 80, is like the, she? This is like the old joke about um, uh, uh, Don Bradman at the, uh, the MCG saying... Yeah, that's um, right. No, that was... Uh, that was, that was, that was, it was Tom O'Bowl to him. On, I think it was on the rest day. Tom O'Bowl to him and, uh, and, and Bradman sort of handled it pretty well. Um, um, yeah, but that, that's it. That's it. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably uh, not quite as good as some of the players going around, but I am 90. Um, yeah, what, what, what would you average these days? Oh, you know, probably in the 60s, but, but I am 90, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Margaret Court was asked to comment today after uh, the retirement or the confirmation of the retirement of Serena as she lost. Uh, as she lost in the second round at uh, Flushing Meadows. Uh, she said, I, I've admired her as a player, but I don't think she has ever admired me. And then she went on to say, I was at Wimbledon this year and nobody even spoke to me. So I thought, that's Margaret Court. So I thought, that ah, that's interesting. And she told the paper, it's very sad because a lot of the press and television today, particularly in tennis, don't want to mention my name. Yeah, there's also the question of her own sort of behaviour, and I, I think that's why a lot of the media give her a bit of a swerve. It's it's a sad sort of thing, but there is this sort of evangelical stuff, and I'm all for freedom of religion, Jack. But some of it's not. Some of it's pretty unpleasant. They don't well, like governments. We know that because that's what uh, Scotty Morrison told them. Don't 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 trust governments. <laughs> don't trust governments. Trust in God. Yeah. Well, look, look it's, it's always sad when you see a, a former great not being given the proper amount of respect, but then people can be turned off by some aspects of people's lives and you just got to accept that if you choose to go down yeah. a certain, some paths. And you know, yeah. um, I, 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 I've got no problem with it. I might, I might add, Billie Jean King also said that she thought that um, Serena was the greatest player of the She did her say time. that, yeah. 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 Um, and I think that's. That's a very good as me. Not as good as me on a good day. Well, perhaps, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, rolling, rolling into the NRL finals this week, uh, we got the Raiders who came into the eight after smashing the Tigers. I think they needed forty-five points. Listeners might be correct me on that, just to get up uh, with the win and and the points difference. And I think they got just that when they beat uh, the Tigers. I think uh, uh, was it 50, 50, 56, 10 or something like that. Uh, so they've made the finals and they'll play the Storm uh, and the Twilight game on Saturday. Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Ricky Stewart, the coach, is having a bit of a whinge, as are the Canberra Raiders more generally about the playing times uh, because they've uh, only had a little bit of... Uh, Time to travel from Sydney to Canberra and then on to Melbourne. <laughs> it's not as if it's not as if we're talking to being around the world in eighty days. We're, no, we're just going, you know. That they all, Ricky Stewart, he can't stop whinging about it. And I'd suggest it's not the best way to be going into a final. Uh, he did say. Is there something like Dally M for whinging? Is there something like <laughs> oh, a Dally right. M for whinging? whinging uh, bagging refs and uh, and saying appalling things about uh, opposition players. Uh, he'd win them. He'd win it every week, every yeah. year. Uh, I should say. Um, yeah. Look, uh, we'll see. Uh, Panthers, who are definitely uh, uh, the uh, head and shoulders of best side so far this year in the home and away season, they will play the, the Earls on Friday night. Sharks, Cowboys, Saturday night. Storm v Rose, as we mentioned, is the twilight game down in Melbourne. Uh, and uh, Roosters and Rabbitohs will play on Sunday. In a, in a, in a reprise, in a reprise of their their, their game last week. <coughs> now, um, a, 
an NRL fan of mine was suggesting, a, a pal of mine was suggesting that um, that the one team that the Panthers have a little bit of trouble with is the Eels. Uh, the Eels are in blinding good, blindingly good form. I, I think they uh, that that will be a hell of a game to watch. Um, Sharks Cowboys got a fair bit about it too, but you would think the Sharks, you know, they seem to have the wood on the Cowboys, and uh, you'd, you'd expect the Storm to. Uh, it's the first time out of the four, and I can't remember how many years, Jack, but it's a staggering number of years for Melbourne Storm to finish top four in the NRL home and home and away season. At least ten or twelve years, and uh, and they will uh, they will play in a, an elimination final against the Raiders. Uh, and and roosters and rabbitos. That's a that's a fantastic group of. Uh, it always is the case. I reckon AFL NRL that first week of the finals just just offers tantalising matchups. Well, you get to find out who's um, not just good at home and away footy, but who's actually good uh, when the when the, the spotlight really goes on. Yeah, it'll be an interesting game on Friday night. But I expect the Panthers to go through, go straight through to the uh, to the prelim. They have been the side uh, to watch all season in the well, in the union, well, Jack. Well, 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 my pal says take the eels at odds. Oh, okay, tip. all right, we'll see. Yeah, no, look, they they, they absolutely spanked the storm. Um, uh, last Mind you, week. gamble responsibly. Yeah. Oh well, if you if you can't, it's not it's not our fault. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, Wallabies um, Wallabies got beaten twenty four eight, coming off some good form, uh, got blown off the park. A bit of a bit of spite in the game uh, because there was a memory of Corabetti's uh, 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 match saving tackle uh, that the South Africans weren't happy about, and Mapimpi, who was the one tackled, got. Got past Karabedi this time in the 70th, 70th minute, put the ball down, and there was a bit of a skirmish after that, uh, Jack. Bit of a melee. A good old-fashioned stink. A good old-fashioned stink. It was good to watch, actually. And, of course, uh, uh, the Wallabies will uh, front up uh, to the All Blacks, uh, I think, on the 15th of September. It's a uh, Thursday, Thursday week, um, and it would seem like the All Blacks just uh, hit a bit of form. I think they uh, beat uh, the Pumas by about 50 points on the weekend. I think they've been stung into uh, um, into action over there, over the ditch. Uh, yes, uh, there have been some fairly poor performances, but uh, they might have just uh, run themselves back into a bit of form. And our beloved uh, AFL Jack, uh, the Swans, uh, with their win over Melbourne by four goals, uh, they've emerged as the uh, form side in the competition. Going very nicely. Uh, and uh, they play a, uh, uh, they play, a, they've gone straight into a prelim, which will be at the SCG and will play either Collingwood or Frio. And I'd suggest to you, Jack, that would give them a very, very short odds to be playing in a grand final. Well, it gives them a really good chance. One thing I took out of the weekend was that I thought that the top four were just a little bit better than the than the, the bottom four in the eight. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the Fremantle uh, Western Bulldogs game, Jack. Um, um, Fremantle, look, they might have played themselves into a bit of form, but they're very slow starting. And I think yeah. the Bulldogs kicked the first five or six goals, uh, and uh, they were very 40, poor. 42 early points on. in front, a magic number, uh, Jack, if you remember back to 1970. No, 44, mate. That was 44. That was seven goals, too. Um, but. Uh, but uh, we're not counting. Um, look, yeah, I, I thought the Cats were pretty good against a very brave Collingwood. Um, it was a hell of a game, as was the uh, the Sydney Melbourne game, uh, and 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 of course the uh, uh, the Tigers Lions game uh, on the Wednesday on the Thursday night was a terrific game as well, with uh, Brisbane getting up by a very narrow margin. Uh, it, it seems to me to be the Swans versus the Cats, but. I'd definitely say at this particular juncture, I don't know how the markets have framed it, but I reckon the Swans should be should be listed as favourites to win the Premiership. Yeah, they're going very well. Uh, but I, I, I thought the uh, uh, the Geelong Collingwood and the uh, Sydney Melbourne games were just a little bit better than the other two games. They, they were very very tight, high class finals football all um, good, all weekend. Yeah, even, yeah. even good players. Really good players were struggling to find enough space or time. That's always a mark of a top quality game, in my view. It doesn't always make it the prettiest thing to watch, but by gee, you appreciate it if you love football. 
very hard, very hard at the footy on the uh, Saturday twilight game, Collingwood and the Cats. Uh, I think, you know, both sides had about 80 tackles each. Um, really, really tough, hard footy there. And Collingwood actually surprised me. I thought they might be, a, I thought they might uh, battle a bit in the finals, but they really did show plenty. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're not out of it. Um, they can come. Uh, I'd expect them to beat Fremantle, uh, and then they were going to play the Swans, which they might find trickier. Uh, Melbourne will play the Brisbane Lions to see who takes on the Cats in their preliminary final. And meanwhile, Jack, uh, we haven't sort of felt the great national shock that we did when Zimbabwe beat Australia in a World Cup many years ago, but Australia lost to Zimbabwe in Townsville on the weekend. And it's the first win by Zimbabwe on Australian soil. Australia knocked out, knocked, uh, knocked out for 140. Uh, and uh, Leggy, Zimbabwean Leggy, Ryan Burl took five for ten. He took three catches too, including uh, a court and bowl. So he had a fair afternoon. Uh, and I did watch the game actually. Uh, that's how boring my life got. But um, uh, I did watch the game. In fact, well, I, I watched the chase, the Zimbabwean run chase, and they were. Uh, they had they had a few shaky moments, uh, but the skipper led them, uh, got them through with a with a solid thirty at the at the end. Well, I think they should take um, a young uh, Ryan Burl under under their arm and uh, start him on the public speaking um, uh, uh, training because he's going to be doing after dinner speakers speeches about this for about the next forty years. Well, the other th- thing that was remarkable about the scoreline is Australia got one hundred and forty. And and Dave Warner got ninety four of them, yeah, which was six, close six. to a record, not quite the record in terms of a percentage made by one player of the total score. The record holder, and then with uh, Dave from the suburbs now coming second, the record holder was uh, the great civilian Alexander Isaac Alexander Richards, who I think got a big hundred in a in a World Cup semi final. A big hundred of West Indies, uh, sort of two forty, sort of thing. Um, mm. But uh, but Dave got about sixty four or five percent of the total score himself. Uh, but he fell to Ryan Burl, uh, going the big slog slog sweep, and uh, yeah, five for ten. And the Zimbabweans had a win. Uh, Australia will play New Zealand uh, tomorrow, on the sixth of uh, September, in the first of uh, three ODIs, also up in FNQ. And uh, they'd want to be a little bit better than that. And and Darren Finch would want to make a run, Jack, because he can't buy one at the moment. Yeah, no, but just think about it. You know, the name I took, five for ten and three catches, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's under 14 stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he's had a blinder. And if you look at the scorecard, uh, really no one, I think only only uh, one other player besides Warner got into double figures. So he, he bamboozled the Australian batsman and yeah. they'll need to be better than that when they face New Zealand uh, this uh, this week, first of uh, three. And, Jack, I don't know if you saw these things over the weekend. Two deeply moving movements uh, moments from from from, uh, from the weekend for me. The first was Shane Hawkins, uh, who playing drums with the Foo Fighters on a rendition of My Hero at the Taylor Hawkins. That's his dad's tribute concert. It was actually a marvellous thing. I had many guests, the Foo Fighters, uh, playing in London. Uh, uh, Liam Gallagher turned up and played a lot of Oasis songs with Foo Fighters in the background. Um, uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica was there. ACDC, Brian Johnson was there. Um, but the, what the great moment was uh, when Shane Hawkins, who's a 16-year-old son of the late Taylor, uh, gave the gave the drums a nice old thumping too while they went through a rendition of My Hero. Very, very moving, Jack. Uh, the best comment I saw about it was from on Twitter. I can't remember who, who, who made it, but he said, just how much better Oasis would have been with a decent drummer. <laughs> Yeah, like it was, it was really, really moving. And and, and look, I'll, I'll pop, I'll pop that video up on my, um, on, or the link to the Rolling Stone piece, which has the video of the entire song. I'll pop that up on my Twitter account because it is it was a really wonderful thing. I watched it a couple of times. Very, very moving. And also, Jack, Brendan Fraser, the the actor who we had sort of got to know through the Mummy franchise and as George of the Jungle, a bit of a comic actor there. He sort of basically disappeared from the scene and he's emerged now in a starring role 
in a in a, in a film uh, directed by uh, Darren Aronofsky called The Whale, where he plays a six hundred pound man, an English teacher, um, and uh, uh, <coughs> working his way through uh, working his way through some of the challenges that life's put to him. And um, and, and and Brendan Fraser received a, a, a standing ovation. Uh, at the Venice International Film Festival. Again, I'll pop the clip up because this is a man who hasn't acted for a very long time. This is a film a long, long time in the making too. And uh, and there are now sort of talks of uh, Oscar nominations and, and what have you. Uh, but Fraser uh, had this very unlikely, uh, just improbable for him anyway. He was completely overwhelmed by this standing ovation that he received that went on for very many, for, for a long time and he stood there uh, with a few tears in his eyes and it was a very lovely moment. Uh, welcome back to movies, Brendan Fraser. Well, I just hope he really is 600 pounds and he, oh, wasn't, he hasn't been guilty yeah. of appropriating um, yeah, the role from up. the real fat bastard. You know? Oh, he has dubbed up. Look, it's a, it's a broader thing and I don't want to sort of take away from that moment, but where actors put on significant amounts of weight and then lose it, I mean, it's a dangerous thing to do, right? And they do it under management, of course, but they mm. often do it, Jack, with a few steroids and uh, a bit of chemical assistance and that makes it even more dangerous, of course. It is indeed. Not saying that about Brendan Fraser at all. Um, the uh, uh, the video that uh, that I will post up shows him probably probably around one ten, one twenty. I would say one ten, one twenty kilograms. So uh, yeah, well shy of the six hundred. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well I had shy. a good look. It's a very it's a very moving video. Beautiful Have a look thing. at it. It's it's one of those things where he's just not expecting it. And, and then he just becomes completely overwhelmed by it. And, and you can tell, yeah, I've been, I've been through some hard years to get to this point again. Thank you. So that was, uh, that was a really great moment. Uh, two great moments from the weekend for me. Jack, uh, thank you very much. I hope your, uh, your COVID, uh, uh, continues to disappear and the jackhammers, which have, which have lulled, uh, as we've gone through our recording and the jackhammers aren't going to give you too much mischief for the rest of the day. It, it, it's always a bit disturbing here when you don't hear them for a little while. You start to wonder whether the whole, whether you're the last <laughs> the person economy, left in the city. The economy's you know, collapsed. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, good luck, mate, and thank you for your time today. And thank you to our listeners once again. And we and remind you that uh, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line to the conditional release program at gmail.com if you've got any questions, any comments, any vicious criticisms, or even death threats. Please do drop us a line. Thank you, Jack. And we'll see you next week. Cheers, mate.